You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 283, Advance on Petersburg. I finished up last week with the arrival of General William Phillips in Portsmouth, Virginia in March of 1781. Now, initially, the British commander back in New York, General Henry Clinton, had dispatched forces to Virginia in hopes of disrupting American supplies to the Southern Army and creating a friendly port for the British Navy. But after Arnold's successful raid on Richmond, it became apparent that more aggressive action in Virginia might actually pay off for the British. So Clinton sent General Phillips to take command from Arnold in Virginia and see if there was a chance that Virginia might fall to British authority. As everyone on both sides quickly discovered, Virginia's defenses were a mess. To put it charitably, the militia was ineffective. The state government seemed unwilling to take any steps to defend the state or support those who could. The Continental Army, under General Lafayette, was still up in Maryland. And even if it could manage to get into Virginia, it was only about one-third the size of the British force now under General Phillips. Clinton's decision to send General William Phillips and several thousand more soldiers to Virginia was evidence that he thought there was some promise for more military action in the state. I've discussed General Phillips in earlier episodes. He was one of the few top British officers not to come from an aristocratic family. We know relatively little about his background, except that he did come from a military family. He got his start in artillery, which was not normally the way to rise through command. Yet his ability as an officer, and through good contacts, he managed to rise through the ranks both as a general and becoming a member of parliament before the war began. Although the Saratoga campaign wasn't successful, Phillips did participate it and came through with his reputation intact. He spent the next three years as a prisoner of war, much of it in Virginia, where he was a regular dinner guest at Monticello with Thomas Jefferson. He returned to active service in 1780 after being exchanged for General Benjamin Lincoln, who had been captured at Charleston. Virginia would be Major General Phillips' first independent command as a major general. Upon his arrival, he took command from Brigadier General Benedict Arnold, and it appears that many of the officers were happy with the new commander. Arnold's success in Virginia had helped his reputation with the British command in New York, but at the same time, many of the old criticisms of the American General Arnold followed him into the British Army. General Arnold had started a spat with Commodore Thomas Simmons, who commanded the British Navy in Virginia. Arnold claims to have convinced Simmons that they should split 50-50 any spoils of war that they captured. Traditionally, naval officers kept for themselves and their crews some percentage of any ships or cargo they captured. 
Army officers traditionally did not collect any official share of booty as personal property. By late January 1781, shortly after the raid on Richmond, Arnold and Simmons were no longer on speaking terms, and everyone was of the view that Arnold was primarily out to enrich himself above all else. Simmons prevented Arnold from shipping some of his captured goods back to New York. Arnold then ordered Simmons to move his ships into dangerous and shallow waters, which Simmons refused to do. This led Arnold to suggest that Simmons was either a coward or disloyal, which of course did nothing to help the relationship between the two officers. Now, many other officers under Arnold, including Hessian Jaeger commander Johann Ewald, were skeptical of any man who would switch sides in the middle of a war. Many of them questioned Arnold's decision not to burn the private stores of tobacco or other goods in the Richmond raid, murmuring that they believed Arnold hoped to seize those goods for his personal enrichment. Now, once General Phillips took command, many British officers and men were more comfortable with their commander. Phillips criticized Arnold's defenses at Portsmouth, finding them inadequate to a potential attack. He also tried, at least, to get Arnold and Simmons to work together as needed. At the same time, Phillips was not pushing Arnold aside. He conferred with Arnold on the state of affairs in Virginia and took his advice on future actions. One of the first major actions that the two men agreed on was a British raid up the Potomac River. Now, the river marked the border between Maryland and Virginia. Phillips wanted to make sure that it would not serve as a route for Lafayette to bring his Continental Army into the fight. It was also an opportunity to destroy American supplies and flex British power within the state. General Clinton had ordered Phillips to do what he could to destroy any enemy stores in the state, and the raid was part of that effort. Command of this raid went to Captain Thomas Graves. I've mentioned Graves way back in the beginning of this podcast. His uncle was Admiral Samuel Graves, who commanded the British Navy in America when the war began. Captain Graves commanded a small ship in Boston Harbor that managed to run aground and allowed the Americans to burn it. After that, he had a few other small commands until returning to England when his uncle, the Admiral, was recalled. After some time, Captain Graves returned to America where he commanded several smaller ships in North America and the West Indies with little note. Graves commanded the Savage, a sloop with only 14 guns. He had sailed to Virginia along with Admiral Arbuthnot's fleet. Although the Savage was too small to clash with the French in the Battle of Cape Henry, it was just the right size for a river raid up the Potomac River. Graves left Hampton Roads on April 3rd. It took the fleet four days to reach the mouth of the Potomac River. There, the fleet seized several small and surprised merchant ships and encountered a few British privateers. The fleet spent a few days around St. Clement's Island, stopping ships that came within sight of the fleet. They then began to sail up the river, encountering a group of Maryland militia around April 10th near Matthias Point. Graves landed a shore party to dispatch the militia and destroy several buildings, including a linen factory. The militia put up some fight since Graves reported one man killed and another wounded. Following that encounter, Graves raised his fleet up the river, arriving in Alexandria the following day. While the fleet remained just offshore, the local militia turned out in force. The militia commander there was John Fitzgerald who had served for several years in the Continental Army, 
including some time serving as one of General Washington's aides-de-camp. After being wounded at the Battle of Monmouth, Fitzgerald returned home to Alexandria, where he remained active in the militia. Although it appears that the militia did not turn out in enough numbers to prevent a British raid on the town, Captain Graves never sent a landing party ashore. A terrible rain that afternoon and evening may have been part of the reason. It would have been difficult to burn the town. Also, one of the British ships ran aground, and Graves probably wanted to focus on rescuing his ship. The following day, the British fleet turned around and began sailing back downriver. Although they had managed to sail most of the distance from the Chesapeake to Alexandria in less than two days, they took their time sailing back downriver, stopping at all the plantations along the shore. The fleet lingered for several days just offshore at Mount Vernon. Landing parties marched to several area plantations, including one belonging to Henry Lyles, who lived across the river from Washington in Maryland. Graves demanded that they provide him with fresh provisions, which he would pay for. When refused, Graves landed between 100 and 200 men who burned the plantation and seized whatever they wanted. The next, Graves turned his attention to Mount Vernon. He was well aware of the plantation's famous owner, referring to it in his logs as General Washington's house. He made the same offer there that he did to other plantations, turn over provisions or be destroyed. General Washington's cousin, Lund Washington, was in charge of the plantation. Now, first, Washington refused the British request, but when Graves positioned his ship to fire on Mount Vernon, the caretaker had a change of heart. Washington boarded the British ship with a gift of poultry for the commander. The men conversed for a time, after which Washington provided sheep, hogs, and other supplies for the British fleet. Seventeen of Washington's slaves also asked to leave with the fleet and were permitted to go aboard. The result was that Mount Vernon was spared destruction. A few days later, Lafayette wrote to Washington about what had happened. The general immediately wrote to his cousin to scold him for dealing with the enemy. Washington noted to Lund that he should not have cooperated with the enemy in any way, and that by doing so, after so many neighbors had resisted, only made him look bad and reflected poorly on his honor. As Washington put it in his letter, quote, It would have been a less painful experience to me to have heard that, in consequence of your noncompliance with their requests, they had burnt my house and laid my plantation to ruins. After leaving Mount Vernon, the fleet landed at several other plantations further downriver, receiving fire several times and burning and destroying properties in response. About a week after leaving Alexandria, the fleet was back down the river and in the Chesapeake Bay. Captain Graves forwarded much of his supplies and dozens of escaped slaves back to Portsmouth while spending a few more weeks roaming around the Chesapeake, plundering plantations, and policing other ships in the area. By the end of May, he was back in Portsmouth and ready for his next mission. The raid on Potomac, however, was only a sideshow to General Phillips's larger plan to destroy Virginia's infrastructure and crush any local military resistance within the state. This would start with a larger raid up the James River toward Richmond. In April, Phillips took a force of 2,500 men aboard a fleet of ships and, along with General Arnold, left Portsmouth. Their first stop was Williamsburg, about 40 miles away. 
The defense of Williamsburg was a local militia force of about 600 men under the command of James Innes. As the British approached, Innes, whose men had been on patrol for more than two days with no food or supplies, opted to retreat. Governor Jefferson issued a call for more militia in the region to turn out and support Innes, but once again he was largely ignored. General Arnold marched into Williamsburg virtually unopposed. The only defense came from an ambush where some college students from William and Mary College fired on the British as they entered the city. After a single, ineffectual volley, the students fled. The British took Williamsburg. They also captured and destroyed a nearby navy yard. The Americans had withdrawn some of the ships from the shipyard, but also left some behind. The British seized what they could, burned what they couldn't, and made sure the shipyard was inoperable. Following the destruction of the Navy Yard, the British reboarded their ships and continued up the James River. They sailed past the still-undefended Hood's Point. Once again, the British camped around the Bird Plantation in Westover, about a day's march south of Richmond. This time, the size of the British force was three times the size that General Arnold had used to raid Richmond about three months earlier. This was an army of occupation. Between the 2,500 strong British army and Richmond were maybe a thousand militia that General von Steuben had managed to round up, mostly by combining with the militia commanded by General Muhlenberg, who had been deployed near Portsmouth. Now, despite being outnumbered and having less experienced soldiers, von Steuben and Muhlenberg decided to make a stand at Petersburg, a town a few miles south of Richmond. The actual defenses were set up just outside of Petersburg in the village of Planford. The American commanders were under no illusion that they were going to win this battle. Their goal was to delay the British advance in hopes that reinforcements would arrive in time to defend Richmond. The militia would tie up the British army for as long as they could, then retreat across the Appomattox River. On the evening of April 23rd, the British force of 2,500 ferried across the James River to land at City Point, an area today known as Hopewell. This is about 12 miles east of Petersburg. The militia formed two defensive lines at Blanford and awaited the expected attack the following morning. Von Steuben also put one regiment on the other side of the Appomattox in case the British tried to get around them in a flanking maneuver. Another small force guarded the bridge that the militia would need to cross for their expected retreat. General Phillips saw no need to rush the matter. Unlike Tarleton, who would wake his men up at two in the morning so they could be on top of the enemy by dawn, Phillips allowed his men to get a good night's sleep. The army woke up, had breakfast, and was on the march by about 10 a.m. Colonel Simcoe's Corps of Queen's Rangers led the column, followed by Arnold's American Legion and Ewald's Hessian Jaegers. Eleven British gunboats moved up the Appomattox, carrying more men and supplies. By two o'clock, Phillips halted the column about a mile from the enemy lines. He formed his army into a line of battle. Colonel Robert Abercrombie would lead some light infantry and Jaegers against the American left flank, hoping to capture the bridge that the Americans wanted for their retreat. Colonel Thomas Dundas would lead two regiments of regulars against the American right flank. Phillips would hold another division of light infantry, as well as Arnold's and Simcoe's units in reserve, in case they were needed. Up until this time, the Virginia militia had proven 
terrible in battle and tended to flee within minutes of encounters with the enemy. The first line of militia maintained a defensive fire for about 30 minutes until the British brought up more soldiers and artillery. The first line then pulled back in good order to join up with the second defensive line. As the battle continued, Phillips deployed Simcoe to ride his rangers around the American left. Simcoe was supposed to ride around the battle and secure the bridge that would cut off the American line of retreat. As Simcoe rode off, Phillips ordered two assaults on the second line, but they came under pretty heavy fire and ended up having to pull back. Once again, the British brought up more artillery, thus forcing the Virginians to retreat. The Americans still held the bridge and made an orderly retreat across the Appomattox, then pulled up the bridge planking to prevent the British from following. From the other side of the river, both sides continued an artillery duel. As the British struggled to cross the Appomattox, the Virginia militia retreated north to Chesterfield Courthouse just outside of Richmond. The fighting and maneuvering meant that it took the British Army five days to march the 20 miles to the outskirts of Richmond. The British reached Richmond on April 29th, but as the Army looked across the James River at its target, it discovered a new turn of events. Weeks earlier, General Lafayette had grown frustrated at his inability to get his army of 1,200 Continentals into Virginia. He had returned to Baltimore, where his main army had camped with the intention of marching north to rejoin Washington's main army in New Jersey. Washington, however, had received word of Phillips' arrival in Virginia with reinforcements, and he sent orders back down to Lafayette to return to Virginia and contest the state with the British. The ever-dutiful Lafayette marched his army south, arriving in Alexandria, Virginia, only a few days after the British raid under Thomas Graves had threatened the city. Lafayette lingered there for a few days. He learned about the threat to Mount Vernon and, as I said, wrote Washington about it. Soon, though, he continued on, pushing his men on the 100-mile march to Richmond. When Phillips arrived across the river from Richmond, he found Lafayette's Continentals entrenched in the city and awaiting his attack. Now, Phillips still had an army that was twice the size of Lafayette's, but crossing the river in the face of the enemy and pushing them out of the city would probably be a pretty costly victory for the British. Instead, the British burned the tobacco warehouses and other buildings that were south of Richmond and returned to Westover without any further confrontations. Once in Westover, Phillips received word on May 7th that General Cornwallis was marching his army up from North Carolina and that the two of them should meet in Petersburg. Two days later, Phillips marched his army back to Petersburg to occupy the town and await the arrival of Cornwallis. He discovered, however, that Lafayette had not simply remained in Richmond. The Continentals had advanced to Petersburg and met the British with artillery fire from the heights just north of town. It was around this time that Phillips encountered the most deadly enemy of the war. He came down with a terrible fever. Historians guess that it was either malaria or typhoid. Phillips had to take to a sickbed and put General Arnold back in command of the army. Over the next few days, Phillips suffered from a fever as Lafayette's Continental Army continued to rain fire on the enemy. After a shell hit the house where he was trying to recover, he reportedly said, quote, Won't that boy let me die in peace? Soon afterward, on May 13th, Phillips succumbed to his illness and died. 
all the while remaining under the fire from the officer whose father his own artillery had killed long ago at the Battle of Minden decades earlier. Lafayette had avenged his father. A few days later, Cornwallis arrived in Petersburg with his army. What had started in Virginia as a distraction had now become the primary goal of the British Southern Army. General Clinton sent even more reinforcements from New York, bringing Cornwallis's army up to over 7,000 men. George Washington deployed more continental reinforcements under General Anthony Wayne to join Lafayette in Virginia. The armies were gearing up for a major campaign. But we'll have to get to that future campaign in a future episode, because next week we're going to head south again as Spanish General Bernardo de Galvez takes West Florida from the British at the Battle of Pensacola. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern. Also to Patrick LeBeau, who joined at the Robert Morris Circle level, and to David Bray, who joined Patreon at the Privy Council level last month. I really appreciate everyone who supports this podcast, either through ongoing contributions on Patreon or one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I really couldn't do this without your support. And just a reminder that this podcast is going to become part of the Airwave Media Network. It will also remain as part of the Into History Network. My goal with these networks is to help promote the show. This episode also marks my return to weekly episodes. For the past couple of months, I tried to fill in the odd weeks with guest episodes, but I hope to go forward now publishing regular episodes every week. There may still be the occasional guest episode, but thanks to your support, I hope to publish weekly content going forward. A couple of clarifications and corrections from last week. Uh, When I talked about my book recommendation last week, I identified John Palmer, the author of the book, as the oldest American soldier in World War II. Now, it was pointed out to me that Palmer was born in 1870, while another American soldier, Charles Keller, was born in 1868. However, Keller retired from the Army in 1943, around the time of his 75th birthday. Palmer served through the entire war, meaning that he was 75 and a half when still in active service at the end of the war, 
So I stand by my original statement that John Palmer was the oldest American soldier in World War II. I did make one mistake last week, though. I referred to Admiral de Touche as the commander of the French fleet at the Battle of Cape Henry. Turns out that de Touche never made the rank of admiral. He was chef de escadre, roughly the equivalent to a British or American commodore. So if I do make a mistake, which I do on occasion, feel free to write me and correct me, and I will try to set things back on course. Now this week, we saw the war in Virginia expand exponentially. The main reason this happened was Virginia's weak response to Arnold's raid on Richmond earlier in the year. The British were looking for any weaknesses that they could exploit. If the Virginia militia had given them as hostile a response as the British received in, say, North Carolina, they probably would not have sent the army under General Phillips to try to occupy Virginia. I can't really say why the Virginia militia gave such a poor showing. As I said last week, I think part of the blame has to fall on Governor Thomas Jefferson for his weak leadership. I think part of it was also the resentment between Virginians in the West and their resentment of the Tidewater plantations in the East. There were really big social and economic differences that eventually led to the separation of West Virginia from the state, but the Carolinas had many of these same divisions. One of the differences, I guess, was that the British had not yet threatened the western part of Virginia, meaning these people were less motivated to help out the neighbors that they really did not like. This episode also covered the attack on Mount Vernon. I'm often asked why the British did not burn Mount Vernon simply on the basis of its owner, despite the fact that the plantation's caretaker cooperated with them. That really was a decision by the British commander who decided for himself what was proper ethical moral. Finally, we covered what I like to call Lafayette's Iniego Montoya moment, where he has the opportunity to kill the man who killed his father. Of course, technically, General Phillips died of disease, but only with Lafayette bearing down on him. With General Phillips' death, General Arnold once again took command of the British Army in Virginia, but his command would be short-lived until we get to General Cornwallis' arrival in the state. If you want to learn more about how Virginia evolved during the Revolutionary War era, you'll want to check out my book recommendation this week. It's entitled Richmond During the Revolution, 1775-83, to by Harry M. Ward. It's a look at how the city and region developed during the course of the war. Of course, Richmond had become the capital during the war, after the British started threatening the coastal region of the state. The author, Harry Ward, was a professor at the University of Richmond, and he wrote this book quite a while back during the Bicentennial Era, when lots of books were being written about this era. It was first published in 1977, and Ward has also written a number of other books about the Revolutionary War. This one is focused on Richmond itself, how it went from being a regional center to becoming the capital of Virginia. The book has been out of print for 50 years, but there are used copies available for sale. There's also a copy that you can borrow on archive.org. So, if this topic interests you, get a copy of Richmond During the Revolution, 1775-83, to by Harry Ward. My online recommendation is the original letter that George Washington wrote to his cousin, Lund Washington, after learning that Lund had traded with the British 
in order to save Mount Vernon. This is a classic letter from Washington. He makes very clear that he did not approve of Lund's actions and spells out exactly what he should have done. But at the same time, he tells his cousin that he understood his actions and still held confidence in him. I've included a link to the letter available on the National Archives on my blog and website. My question this week asks, how many battles did France fight on behalf of America during the Revolutionary War? How many victories did they achieve over Great Britain? Well, for starters, I suppose I would have phrased the question differently. France did not fight on behalf of America. France fought alongside America in a few battles. Much of France's assistance came in the form of financial aid. France also fought many battles with the British during the war, not on behalf of America, but for its own benefit. Most of these battles took place in the Caribbean, where France was seeking to capture or defend island colonies. Other naval battles took place in the waters off Europe or the coast of India. Several French officers, of course, also fought in the Continental Army. Lafayette, who I talked about this week, is probably the most famous example. Now, these were individuals who fought for America, obviously with the tacit consent of the French government. Occasionally, late in the war, France would send a fleet up from the Caribbean to help the Americans. France did send a small army to America. An example of this was the failed siege of Savannah in late 1779. There was also an attempt by the French Navy to assist in the capture of Newport, Rhode Island in 1778, but that one was canceled after a storm damaged the French fleet, so both of these were British victories. In the summer of 1780, a small French army landed at Newport, Rhode Island. For more than a year, the French army remained in camp and did not engage in battle. The commanders, Rochambeau and Washington, both agreed that they didn't have enough soldiers in their combined armies to take on the British in New York City. Even without that battle, the mere presence of the French army forced Britain to keep more soldiers in New York, thus allowing the Americans an advantage in the South, where battles were raging during this time. Eventually, the French and American armies marched down to Virginia in late 1781 and fought together to capture the British army at Yorktown. This was really the only major land battle that the French and Americans won together, but it certainly was a decisive and an important one. If you have a question that you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.